Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Coming up in episode 102 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have an update on the Blackboard data breach, which we first brought news to you of last week. We also have an update on the Twitter data breach. We then have the first of this week's Top ID 19 articles, which is about EU doctors calling for COVID track and trace app assessments to be standardised across the EU. We then have news that GDPR compliant Top ID 19 tests are to be piloted on UK sports fans, and then news that each out to help out the UK government scheme to help the hospitality industry, which is launching on Monday, we have a look into the GDPR implications of the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. Then moving away from Covid 19 we begin with news that over half of UK universities have had a data breach in the last 12 months. And that's not just the Blackboard case, which has affected a lot of them, but other data breaches as well. We then have news from Flintshire of a data breach affecting responses to their local development plan. We then have news from Swapshire Council, who have suffered an email data breach. And then news from Challenger Bank Dave, which also suffered a data breach affecting several million of its customers. We then move to Asia, where the bus ride app Swivel has suffered a data breach in Karachi in Pakistan. We then look at the lessons to be learnt from Morgan Stanley's IT equipment disposal and that they suffered a data breach from some data that was left on some of the equipment they disposed of, even though they disposed that data over four years ago. We then look at the ICO internal audit, which shows that the average fine has increased and is now £216,000. That's even allowing for, or rather taking out, the £183 million fine to British Airways and the £99 million fine to Marriott Hotels. So take those two big ones out, which obviously would weight the average upwards, and the average is still £216,000, which is a lot more than people were used to being fined in pre-GDPR days, or even in the first year of GDPR. So probably a cautionary note there to everyone to be more on your toes. We then cross to Italy, where the Italian Data Protection Authority has fined their telecoms operator for unsolicited marketing. And then to Belgium, where the Belgian DPA has fined Google for not complying with the GDPR right to be forgotten. We then have an interesting discussion on GDPR and how it affects the professional footballer market here in the UK. We then cross to Ireland with news that websites need a compliant cookie policy in place before October 2020. And finally this week we have news from Spain where their data protection authority, the AEPD, has started to show its teeth over the appointment of data protection officers. So as usual, a real mix of articles for you this week. As always, we hope you find the articles useful and informative. If you have any feedback on the articles for us, always feel free to email feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, but unfortunately we get such a volume that we can't answer each one individually. But we do look to, wherever we can, include your suggestions into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. We begin this week with an update on the Blackboard data breach which we mentioned in last week's episode. 
It now appears that over 120 organisations have had their data compromised as a result of this data breach, including national organisations in the UK, such as the UK's National Trust and the Labour Party. A Labour Party spokesperson said, We have been alerted by one of our suppliers, Blackboard, that they have suffered a data breach. We have reported the matter to the UK Information Commission's Office, the ICO, and are working to establish further facts around the situation. We will take any action necessary in line with our statutory obligations. The UK ICO, the Information Commission's Office, said that their latest estimate was that 125 organisations had been involved so far. To give you a little bit of background, if you didn't hear last week's episode, Blackboard has said it became aware of the matter in May and subsequently paid the attackers a ransom. However, Blackboard only advised its clients of the breach in July, which is why notices are only now being sent to members of the public. Some of them specifically make mention of two of Blackboard's platforms, Razor's Edge, which is a well-known alumni fundraising platform which has been on the market for over 10 years, and NetCommunity, again an application which is used to keep track of donors and the sums that they have given. Blackboard have emphasised that the data taken did not include bank account or payment card details. It's understood that quite a range of donors' details have been taken, including names, ages and addresses, car number plate details, employers, estimated wealth and identified assets of alumni, total number and value of past donations to the organisation in question, the wider history of philanthropic and political gifts, spouse's identity and past gift-giving, and the likelihood to make a bequest triggered by their death. Although Blackboard has said that the cyber criminals have provided confirmation that the stolen data was destroyed, it's of course always questionable in these circumstances whether that's actually happened or whether the fraudsters are hanging on to the data to reuse in the future. It's understood the ICO is also pressing Blackboard as to why the data breach was not reported within the required 72 hours. Blackboard has continuously declined to name or number the organisations impacted beyond saying it is a subset of its thousands of clients. The problem is so widespread in the UK higher education sector that some universities, including the University of Edinburgh and Aston University Birmingham, have deliberately updated their websites to say that they weren't involved. Some schools have also been infected, including St Albans in Hertfordshire, Radley College in Abingdon in Oxfordshire, and St Aliosis in Glasgow. ACS International, which teaches children in London, Surrey and Qatar, has also said there is a low threat risk to its alumni and friends' information. In addition, Maccabi GB, an organisation that provides services to 44 Jewish primary and secondary schools, has told supporters their data was amongst that compromised. But the impact of this data breach is not just felt in the UK, it's across the EU, the US and Canada too. So, so far... Those that we've been able to identify as having been breached include Aberystwyth University, ACS International Schools, Brasenose College, University of Oxford, Brunel University, London, De Montfort University, Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh, Hughes Hall College at the University of Cambridge, King's College London, Loughborough University, Oxford Brookes University, Radley College in Abingdon, Robert Gordon University, Salwyn College at the University of Cambridge, St Albans School in Hertfordshire, St Aliosis School in Glasgow, Sheffield Hallam University, Staffordshire University, University College Oxford, University of Aberdeen, University of Birmingham, University of Bristol, University of Durham, University of East Anglia, University of Exeter, University of Glasgow, University of Kent, University of Leeds, University of Liverpool, 
University of London, University of Manchester, University of Newcastle, University of Northampton, University of Reading, including the Henley Business School, University of Strathclyde, University of South Wales, University of Sussex, University of West London and the University of York. Other charities which are believed to be affected include Action on Addiction, Breast Cancer Now, The Choir With No Name, Crisis, Sue Ryder, the Urology Foundation and Young Minds. And international organisations in the US include Darlington School in Georgia, Demwan University, the Diocese of Gaylord in Michigan, Emerson College in Boston, Fair Start in Seattle, the First Place for Youth in California, the Food Bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina, the Hennepin Healthcare Foundation in Minnesota, Human Rights First in New York, Human Rights Watch in New York, the Institute for Human Services in Charleston, Kent Denver School in Colorado, Kids Quest Children's Museum in Bellevue, the Louisiana Tech University Foundation, the Mennonite Economic Development Associates, MENA, in Waterloo, Middlebury College in Vermont, New College of Florida, New Hampshire Public Radio, Northwest Immigrant Rights Project, the Open Space Institute in New York, Rhode Island Store Design, St. Ignatius Loyola Parish in New York, St. Mary's College of Maryland Foundation, the San Diego Public Library Foundation, Save the Children in Connecticut, Solid Ground in Seattle, Springfield Museums in Massachusetts, the Texas Tech Foundation, the University of Dayton, the University of Florida, Urban School in San Francisco, Ventura College Foundation in California, Vermont Food Bank, Vermont Public Radio, and West Virginia University, and then in Canada, the Bishop Strachan School in Toronto, the University of Western Ontario, and in Europe, Hungary's Central European University. We expect this list to continue to grow in the next few weeks, so we will bring you another update in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. The University of York issued a statement to say that although it had been affected by the Blackboard data breach, it had played no part in paying the ransom to the hackers. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We also have an update to bring you on the Twitter data breach. You might remember the breach occurred a couple of weeks ago now when hackers seized control of the celebrity accounts of people like Kim Kardashian, Bill Gates and dozens of other A-lister celebrities. Twitter and the FBI are investigating the worst cyber attack in Twitter's 14-year history as hackers commandeered more than 100 high-profile accounts. The attack on July the 15th relied on a significant and concerted attempt to mislead certain employees and exploit human vulnerabilities to gain access to our internal systems, Twitter said. The company followed up with a tweet saying, By obtaining employee credentials, they were able to target specific employees who had access to our account support tools. On July the 30th, Twitter said of the 130 accounts which had been targeted in the operation, tweets were sent out from 45 of these accounts. The hacked accounts included Apple, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, while three dozen DM inboxes which allow users to send a direct message to anyone on Twitter were also accessed. In addition, the hackers downloaded undisclosed Twitter data from seven accounts. The cyber criminals asked followers to send Bitcoin to a single wallet. The scammers made off with about $100,000. Since the attack, Twitter said it has limited access to internal tools and systems to ensure ongoing account security while the investigation is completed. As a result, some features such as your Twitter data have been impacted. In a statement, Twitter said, 
We will be slower to respond to account support needs, reported tweets and applications to our developer platform. We're sorry for any delay this causes, but we believe it's a necessary precaution as we make durable changes to our processes and tooling as a result of this incident. Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri has written to Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey seeking a fuller explanation of how the cybercriminals managed to get through Twitter's two-factor authentication. In the letter, he said, I am concerned that this event may represent not merely a coordinated set of separate hacking incidents, but rather a successful attack on the security of Twitter itself. As you know, millions of your users rely on your service not just to tweet publicly, but also to communicate privately through your direct message service. A successful attack on your system servers represents a real threat to all your users' privacy and data security. Twitter have declined to comment on that letter, but if we have any further update from Twitter, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. This is an important coronavirus update. Following on from last week's news that the UK's COVID-19 Track and Trace app and indeed Track and Trace procedures were in question because a data protection impact assessment as required by GDPR had not been carried out. This week, the Standing Committee of European Doctors has called for impact assessments to be undertaken on all contact tracing apps across Europe before their deployment in order to safeguard users. In a recent newsletter, the CPME voice their concerns over the use of digital contact tracing applications citing unauthorised access to health data, abuse of data collection and the repurposing or gradual widening of the use of the app beyond the purpose for which it was originally created as risks which must be adequately addressed. In terms of conducting impact assessments of the apps to ensure compliance with EU data protection legislation, Sarah Roda, EU Senior Policy Advisor at the CPME, believes that member states don't have any excuses. An impact assessment contributes to informed decision-making and protection of personal data as well as of societal concerns, she said, adding that such assessments should start before the processing of personal data begins, before the deployment of the app, and it should be revisited periodically once new relevant information becomes available. We've not had any feedback from any of the health authorities across Europe on whether they believe that their apps have had sufficient data protection impact assessments carried out or not. We hope to be able to bring you an update on this soon in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. CPME also stressed that contract tracing apps must meet the essential requirements issued by the European Commission, the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, and the European Data Protection Supervisor, the EDPS, which have called for a common EU approach, compliance with EU data protection law, and cross-border interoperability. Despite this, the UK data tracing application has already been found to be in breach of EU data protection laws, with the UK Department of Health conceding that it was launched without conducting an impact assessment on privacy. Privacy campaigners say the initiative has been unlawful since it began on 28th of May and are now threatening to force the government to conduct a data protection impact assessment. Speaking to the BBC, UK Education Secretary Gavin Williamson said that in no way has there been a breach of any of the data that has been stored, stressing that there was a need to get the track and trace application up and running at incredible speed despite violating GDPR. In terms of the rapidity with which EU member states across the bloc have rolled out their coronavirus apps, Sarah Roder highlighted that the European Commission, the EDPS and the EDPB, acted quite quickly to try to obviate these concerns, 
adding that she hopes that if an app is failing to comply with GDPR, this is identified at national and EU instances and appropriate action is taken by the National Data Protection Authorities. Sarah Roda also highlighted concerns specifically about Poland and Slovakia, saying that there are reports that these countries intend to store data beyond the EDPS and EDPB recommendations. There needs to be an independent entity that monitors the progressive implementation and usage of the apps by public health authorities. This should be the role of national data protection authorities. Stay home, stay safe. A company based in Manchester in the UK claims that it has a application ready to put forward when the UK government allows fans to start re-attending football and other sporting events in large stadiums sometime after August the 15th, 2020. The company says that it has put forward pilot programmes to the UK's government, Department of Culture, Media and Sport, DCMS and the Prime Minister's Office to help get football, rugby and sports fans back into stadiums following Boris Johnson's announcement of trying to get stadiums open by October. The pilot programmes called Fans Are Back, which are widely regarded as game-changing in getting sports fans back into stadiums, have also been given the blessing of former sports minister Richard Cabourne. The pilot programmes were used the most advanced COVID-19 rapid testing kits, which produced test results in 10 minutes, along with GDPR-compliant digital health passports to authenticate and validate COVID-19 test results. Unlike contact tracing apps used by the UK government, the V-Health Passport does not track or trace a person's live location or breach personal privacy protocols and ensures personal data is ultra-secure to the fan using the most advanced security protocols and encryption. The company, VST Enterprises, a leading British technology company along with sports partners Redstrike, public safety and event management partners Halo Solutions and occupational healthcare company Latest Health, have put forward active pilot proposals to DCMS to get football and rugby union and rugby league fans back into sports stadiums across the UK in a safe and controlled manner. Fans are back. Pilot programmes will initially cover football, rugby and snooker, working with DCMS, the Public Health England, SGSA, so the Sports Ground Safety Authority, and the various bodies including the Premier League, the RFU, the RFL and World Snooker. Upon successful trials, other pilot programmes will then be rolled out across music concerts, theatre and other entertainment venues. The pilot programmes will see a sample group of between 50 to 5,000 home fans tested one day prior to a specially designated football or rugby match using a COVID-19 rapid test kit. Each testing kit will also be provided with an ultra-secure digital health passport to be used on the fan's mobile phone called V-Health Passport. The ultra-secure digital passport will authenticate and validate the fan's COVID-19 status. The V-Health Passport is a unique cybersecurity technology app powered by the ultra-secure V-Code, which works alongside a COVID-19 testing kit to provide an intelligent traffic light system on a smartphone to authenticate a person's test status of positive or negative. Red indicates positive, green indicates negative, and amber indicates a countdown trigger date to the next test date required. Unlike other technologies, VHouse Passport does not use unsafe Bluetooth technology or compromise personal privacy and security. VHouse Passport provides a unique verification of a person's health, test and status. All private data is limited and ultra-secure, with end-to-end encryption using closed-loop technology and making the passport unhackable. The Fans of Back pilot programme will be overseen by event safety team Halo Solutions, who have unrivaled expertise in public safety and event management. The team of extensive experience managing and supporting events such as the Cricket World Cup 2019, the Isle of Wight Music Festival, BBC Sports Personality of the Year and British Athletic. 
Medical administration and testing will be carried out by latest health and infinite global possibilities who have extensive experience in occupational health for corporates and COVID-19 testing with clients ranging from investment bank JP Morgan to Morrison Supermarkets. So just how will the pilot work? Well, in step one, a test group of home fans will be selected by their football or rugby team randomly to attend the Pilot Fans Are Back event. Each of these fans will be instructed to download the V-House passport onto their mobile phone prior to the testing day. The fan will then enter their details, their name, their address, their date of birth, their phone number and their doctor's details onto their V-House passport and also confirm their official identity by uploading their official government ID in the form of either a passport or a driver's licence. The uploaded documents are then verified against the phone's facial recognition to match the person's details in a likeness test. Step 2 then sees a sample group of fans invited to attend and take a COVID-19 rapid test at a predefined location by pre-booked appointment the day prior to the event. Upon arrival at the test site, they will be asked to present their V-House passport for scanning and a temperature check will be taken before being directed to a test station for the COVID-19 test. Step 3. The test takes one minute to administer with COVID-19 results in 10 minutes. The fan's test status is then uploaded to their V-House passport. The V-House passport will then show a GDPR-compliant screen when presented to officials for scanning showing the fan's official photograph and a green traffic light symbol to confirm negative test status and the date of the test. A more in-depth and detailed screen can only be viewed by authorised medical staff. The fan is then advised to return home and self-isolate until the pilot match the next day. On match day itself, the fans are then invited to return to the stadium and present their V-House passport, which is scanned by event security officials and stewards to confirm that they are who they say they are and that their valid V-House passport and COVID-19 test status is negative. The V-House passport can be scanned by officials up to 100 metres away in social distancing and while crowds are ingesting into an event, thus preventing choke points and bottlenecks on entry. Step 5 is that the details uploaded to the V-House passport can also then be used for contact tracing purposes working with NHS Digital if a person tested positive in the test day prior to the event. All data from the pilot fans of back event will then be fed back to DCMS, Public Health England and the NHS. Latest Healthcare, along with Infinite Possibilities Global, will administer the COVID-19 test to fans using a 3-in-1 rapid test kit which tests for IgA, IgM and IgG on fans and will also provide medical staff for administration. VSTE and its partners RedStrike will provide a secure digital health passport, VHealth passport, to upload, validate and authenticate the COVID test status. The BioSure Rapid COVID-19 test is the only antibody kit available which tests for IgA, IgM and IgG. Manufactured in the UK, the CE-certified and MHRA-registered triple antibody test is able to identify if a person currently has coronavirus, COVID-19, or if they've had a previous infection. Providing qualitative results in under 10 minutes, this test is praised as a game-changer for the screening of high volumes of people to increase the efficiency of COVID testing and crowd safety. Unlike other technologies and health passports using barcodes or QR codes which are unsecure and able to be hacked, the VHouse passport is ultra secure. The VHouse passport uses the groundbreaking VCode technology which uses closed loop technology and end-to-end encryption with 2.2 quintillion combination codes making it unhackable. It can also be scanned from a distance of up to 100 metres on moving objects. Former Sports Minister Richard Cabin believes that fans of back pilot programmes will positively assist the government's plans and give confidence to fans to allow stadiums safely to reopen again in October. 
This is exactly what the government need to be encouraging sports administrators to adopt for fans to be safe in coming back into sports stadiums and major events. By running the fans about test pilot programme, this will allow football and rugby clubs to trial a programme of rapid testing and using a rehouse passport to confirm and authorise a person's top ID status. In my opinion, it is a significant and positive way of ensuring that spectator sports can resume in the UK where we test, test, test and use a house passport to validate that test result. That is the only way we ensure that sports fans are safely entering the stadium having tested negative. Cabon, who served as Minister for Sport from 2001 to 2007, was one of the UK's longest serving sports ministers and hugely respected for his contribution to UK sport. He was also appointed by Gordon Brown as the Prime Minister's Ambassador for England's 2018 World Cup bid. VSTE are also providing its recode and re-platform technology to work with the United Nations as part of their SDG collaboration, the Sustainable Development Goals Programme, to provide a wide range of technology services to 9 billion people by 2030. We should add that this information comes from a press release from the company which was issued before the Prime Minister's press statement on Friday the 31st of July, which of course has pushed everything back by several weeks. But nonetheless, our feeling at the moment is that this application does look to be fully GDPR compliant, which obviously from our perspective is a big plus, but also looks to be a real positive step forward in getting fans back into sports stadiums. And so we will update you on this as the pilot programme progresses. Stay home, stay safe. Many across the UK will be looking forward to the start of the Eat Out to Help Out programme on Monday this week, which enables people to eat in UK restaurants and cafes for half price or £10 off their meal for each person, depending on which is the greater, anytime Monday to Wednesday. We know that many cafe and restaurant owners would also be looking for this promotion, which would give them a chance to get more covers filled on Mondays to Wednesdays than perhaps they would normally. But for members of the public, we would say if you are taking part in this, do enjoy your meal, of course, at the bargain price, but do be prepared to give your name and address details for NHS track and trace purposes. As given the Prime Minister's media statement on Friday morning, there will be an increased emphasis on collecting that data so that should there be a local outbreak of COVID-19, then it would be possible to trace people and notify them that they may have been exposed to COVID-19 and advise them to take a test and self-isolate as appropriate. Any cafes or restaurants still looking for advice on which apps or programs to use to capture customer data which are GDPR compliant, I'll advise to listen back to episode 98 of the GDPR Week show where we reviewed several of the available applications. And now, the rest of this week's news. A freedom of information request carried out by Redscan has discovered that over half, 54% of UK universities reported a data breach to the ICO in the past 12 months with an average of two reports per university. The security firm said it received back answers from 86 of the 134 higher education institutions it contacted to compile its new report, The State of Cybersecurity Across UK Universities. The report reveals that although the country's universities host over 2.3 million students and 430,000 staff and contribute an estimated £87 billion of value to the UK economy, 
Cybersecurity remains neglected by many. Nearly 46% claimed that staff had received no security training in the past year, while just 51% said they proactively provide training and information to students. Some 12% don't offer any kind of guidance or support to students when it comes to cybersecurity best practice. Those that do go for training spend an average of just £7,529 a year, according to the report. What's more, over 27% of institutions say they never commission external penetration testing. These deficiencies are exposing UK universities to third-party attack and the consequences of staff negligence leading to accidental insider breaches. Recent events, particularly the Blackboard data breach, which we mentioned right at the start of this week's episode, have shown how vulnerable universities can be to cyber attack. Red Stand Chief Technical Officer Mark Nichols argued that these organisations represent an attractive and lucrative target for financially motivated and even state-sponsored attackers. Work to develop a COVID-19 vaccine is just one of a long line of world-changing research projects currently being undertaken by our universities. However, it is one example that really should focus minds on the need to secure important research and IP against the latest cyber threats, including state-sponsored attacks, he said. Aside from negatively impacting an institution's reputation and funding, data breaches leading to the loss of vital scientific research have the potential to seriously hamper innovation and affect lives. We agree that the Blackboard data breach should serve as a warning to higher education establishments that they need to be doing more to protect their data and not be 100% reliant on third-party providers to take all the actions required. We hope in an upcoming episode of the GDPR Show to be speaking to some representatives from the UK's university sector on how they plan to address these problems. What's up, Isabella? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I will try it now. Flintshire Council has issued a statement following what one member of the Welsh Parliament has described as a major data breach. The incident happened on Wednesday when the personal details of people who responded to a consultation were uploaded to the Local Development Plan, LDP, section of the Council's website and left exposed to the public. The Local Development Plan, a key housing blueprint for Flintshire, sets out locations where up to 7,000 new homes to be built in the county over the next decade, whilst protecting key green spaces and parks from development. Councillors agreed to put the LDP out to consultation in July last year. Since then, the Council's Planning Policy Service has been working remotely due to the coronavirus outbreak, which has delayed the progress of the LDP. Without an LDP in place, the community loses some protection against development. The Council said the names and addresses of individuals who have made responses to the LDP consultation were contained in a document and uploaded on Wednesday. Those personal details could be accessed for a period of several hours following publication the Council has admitted. The statement said the personal details were hidden from public view when the document was created and could only have been uncovered with a conscious effort to remove that protection. The Council said the software used to protect the details was not adequate and once the risk was known the document was taken down. They have since been protected with different software, the Council said. The statement goes on to say, Having checked our website visitor records, we can see that only a few people accessed the document in this short period. Once we became aware of the problem, we acted swiftly to correct the document and to prevent further access to personal data. The council says it takes issues of security of personal information extremely seriously and has launched an investigation to find out how the personal details in the document were able to be accessed. It hasn't revealed how many names and addresses were left exposed on its website. 
Prince's Council will now consider whether to refer itself to the Information Commissioner's Office. The individuals whose details were included in the document will be contacted and we're considering whether this matter needs to be reported to the ICO with whom we've maintained a positive and trusting working relationship, the Council said. For the Welsh Government, Welsh Conservative Shadow Minister for Local Government, Housing and Communities, Mark Isherwood, described the incident as a major data breach. This GDPR breach is just the latest event in a saga that is Flinch's local development plan, he said. Given the relatively minor nature of this data breach, we are not expecting any updates either from Flinch's council or the ICO, but if we do receive any, we will of course bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Flintshire were not the only council to have a data breach this week. We also became aware of a data breach at Swapshire Council, in which more than 250 email addresses were exposed. Those involved were emailed an invitation to a webinar focusing on the management of direct payments, but everyone who received the email could see each other's addresses. An investigation was carried out after the council's data protection officer, DPO, was informed. Emails of apology were sent out to those who had been affected and they were also told about the measures that would be taken going forward. A follow-up email from the council said the outcome of the investigation was that a group email address was used on July the 23rd to send an email to a number of individuals, including yourself. However, instead of the BCC field being used, the two field was used in error, meaning that email addresses were made visible to all other email recipients. The investigation identified that there was no personal data in the content of the email itself, but the personal email addresses had been inadvertently shared with other recipients. As a result of the concerns and the incident, we followed our internal procedure when such incidents occur, and we took immediate actions to ensure any risk was mitigated as much and as far as possible. The first mitigation was to attempt to recall the email, but this was not successful. We then sent a further email asking recipients to delete the email sent incorrectly and we're keeping a record of all confirmations where this has been done and we'll do so going forward. Our data protection officer undertook a risk assessment of the breach and discussed the incident with the Information Commissioner's Office to ensure appropriate action was taken to reduce any risk and inform the risk assessment, which then informed the actions taken. An action plan was then identified and will be implemented as soon as possible to follow up on the learning. The email explains that all those within the team will be asked to complete the mandatory data protection training again if they've not already done so in the last two months. The incident will also be highlighted at future team meetings through further staff correspondence and processes will be reviewed. Tom Mullen, Swapshire Council's data protection officer, said any data breaches are taken very seriously and are thoroughly investigated in line with our internal procedures to reduce any potential risk and to take appropriate action. In this case, the incident was fully investigated and appropriate action taken to mitigate any risk posed. As a result of the internal investigation, all those affected were contacted with an explanation of the situation and an apology. In addition, a number of measures were implemented internally to reduce the risk of a similar incident happening again and to ensure that we all learn lessons from this going forward. Now, we would have to say that in our experience... Sharing email addresses when they shouldn't be and not making use of the BCC field is probably the most common form of data breach which is occurring across the UK and probably across Europe, but certainly across the UK every single day. And it's something we emphasise very much in our training. If you are sending an email to external people from your organisation, make sure you put their email addresses in the BCC field in your email client and not in the CC field or in the to field. It really is that simple. If it's an external email address, put it in BCC. That should be drummed home to all of your staff, and such a simple thing 
but do make sure that if you have the opportunity to speak to your staff or to get a newsletter out to your staff that you include that information within it and you dramatically cut down on the number of data breaches which your organisation will be recording. Of course, if your organisation requires more in-depth training on GDPR, we will of course be delighted to provide it to you. Just drop us an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will get back to you to arrange a suitable date and time for the training to take place. Challenger Bank Dave suffered a data breach on Saturday. The security breach exposed the personal data of some 7.5 million Dave users. It's understood that a malicious party gained unauthorised access to certain user data after former third-party service provider Waydev was breached. In a statement, Dave said that the stolen information included names, email addresses, birth dates, physical addresses and phone numbers. The breach did not affect bank account numbers, credit card numbers, records of financial transactions or unencrypted social security numbers, the Los Angeles-based company said. Dave has no evidence that any unauthorised actions were taken with any accounts or any users experienced any financial loss as a result of this incident, Dave said in a statement. Dave, which launched a personal finance app in 2016, rolled out its mobile bank account Dave Banking in May to a waitlist of some 2 million people. The company's total user numbers, however, are believed to be over 7.5 million. ZDNet, which first reported the breach, said a hacker would publish the details of all of the users on a public forum. Dave said it initiated an investigation as soon as it became aware of the breach and is working with law enforcement, including the FBI. The company said it also retained cybersecurity consultant CrowdStrike to assist with its investigation. Dave's security team quickly secured its systems and have been working around the clock to keep customers' accounts safe, the company said. Dave is in the process of notifying all its customers of this incident, along with performing a mandatory reset of all Dave customer passwords. Obviously, it's very early on in this breach, and so we expect to get an update from Dave at some point during the coming week, 10 days, and so we will bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. What's up, Mike? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I'll try it now. To Karachi now, and popular bus-sharing service Swivel has suffered a major security breach that compromised user data, including names, email addresses and phone numbers, for over 4 million of its customers. However, new details emerged on Friday, claiming that the data apparently includes partial credit card information and user passwords as well. According to a company statement published on its website, Swivel said it first became aware of the unauthorised access to its system on the evening of July the 3rd. The investigation into the breach is still underway, but at this stage it is clear that the data was compromised, is restricted to names, email addresses and phone numbers, it said. The company said its investigation ensured that passwords and credit card information of the users were not affected or exposed. However, Australian web security expert Troy Hunt, who runs the popular website Have I Been Pawned, which allows users to search across multiple data breaches to see if their email address has been compromised, said that the company's claim that credit card information and passwords were not compromised was wrong. He said the exposed data included names, email addresses, phone numbers, profile photos, partial credit card data, the type and the last four digits, and passwords stored as bcrypt hashes, all of which has been subsequently shared extensively throughout online hacking communities. Scribble has declined to comment on these claims and has also not specified how many users were impacted but said it had logged all of its users out from their accounts as a precautionary measure. 
The company has urged customers to update their account passwords and those of any other accounts with the same or similar passwords and to change their passwords regularly. We immediately identified and addressed specific vulnerabilities that our IT infrastructure may have had, ensuring our customers' data integrity it maintained, adding that it secured the vulnerability in the system and was confident that its customer data was now safe. Swivel is an Egyptian bus transportation network that was founded in April 2017. It operates buses along fixed routes and allows customers to reserve and pay for them using an app, with operations in Egypt, Kenya and Pakistan in the Middle East and North Africa and Africa regions. In Pakistan, Swivel has operations in Karachi, Lahore and Islamabad. In an announcement in November 2019, the company committed $25 million of investment to expand its operations in Pakistan. Swivel commits to providing regular updates on the investigation process and contacting customers individually if they've been directly impacted, the company said. If we have any more information on this in the next few weeks, we will of course bring it to you in an upcoming episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. And now we look at some lessons to be learned when you're disposing of old IT equipment. And the lessons come from a study into a data breach at Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley hired a vendor to grub devices from two data centers that they chose in 2016. But the vendor had left some client data on the devices. Morgan Stanley has not disclosed the name of the vendor. Some of these servers and hardware were then sold to recycling companies and one recycler had notified Morgan Stanley of the data breach more than a year ago. It's understood that Morgan Stanley and technical experts are analysing the potential risk to clients' data, but no unauthorised activity relating to the incident has been detected. Morgan Stanley has been offering customers potentially affected by the data breach a two-year subscription to Experian credit reports. This is not the company's first data breach incident. In 2016, the bank agreed to pay a $1 million fine to settle U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission civil charges that security lapses at Morgan Stanley had enabled Dallin Marsh, a former financial advisor at Morgan Stanley, to tap into its computers and take client data home. So we said there were some lessons to be learned from this, but what are they? Well, it really applies to anyone who's getting rid of old, redundant IT equipment. There is an inherent risk in careless IT asset disposal. It's important to realise that there's no statute of limitation for improperly discarded IT assets. The equipment at Morgan Stanley, after all, was discarded four years ago. If an organisation didn't practice due diligence with all service providers over the course of time, then the parent organisation, or the original owner of the equipment, if you like, is still liable. This not only applies to how electronic equipment is recycled, but photocopiers, printers, video recording devices, etc., it's important to realise that improper IT asset disposal is a risk carried forward indefinitely. If a hard drive turns up five or ten years down the road with personal information on it, it's still a data breach for the company that originally disposed of the hard drive. So it's really important if you're disposing of old IT equipment that either you physically destroy it or that you seriously carry out due diligence on the company that's performing the destruction for you to make sure that they really are destroying all the data on the items that you've sent for recycling. So Morgan Stanley, they're setting a lesson that I think many companies can learn from. The UK's Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, published the results of its internal audit this week. The internal auditors gave the body a storing of adequate assurance on its risk management policies, procedures and practices. 
The report said that this meant there is generally a sound control framework in place, but there are significant issues of compliance or efficiency or some specific gaps in the control framework which need to be addressed. Adequate assurance indicates that despite this, there is no indication that risks are crystallising at present. The report went on to attribute this mainly to COVID-19, which it says has had a direct impact on the ICO's operations and priorities and may well have a long-term impact on the ICO's future operations and priorities, even after the UK and world returns to normal as the pandemic eases. It says that uncertainty also stems from the UK's exit from the EU and the country establishing its new international position. In the run-up to EU exit, the ICO has devoted significant resources to developing our bilateral relationships with other data protection authorities, both in the EU and beyond, the report says. The COVID-19 crisis has certainly seen the ICO come in for some criticism. It's been criticised for a lack of bite, and it was reported in May that an external consultant had been called in to assess whether the body had the requisite powers to carry out its role effectively. The ICO has also faced criticism for its role in the contact tracing app debacle. Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham attracted flack for equivocating on the ICO's position with regards to the app, while asserting that the body was working as a crystal friend to NHS Digital. The report also shows that during the period, the ICO handled 38,514 data protection complaints, closed 39,860 data protection cases, and received 6,367 Freedom of Information complaint cases. It's worth noting that the average fine issued by the ICO has trebled, from £73,645 in 2016-17 to £216,000 in the last year. And that's after taking out the two largest fines of £183.4 million for British Airways and £99 million for Marriott Hotels, both of which are currently under review because of the turmoil that COVID-19 has invoked in the tourist and leisure sector. You've tried the rest and not impressed. Take a chance and try the best. The Italian Data Protection Authority imposed a fine of €16,729,600 on Windtre SBA, an Italian telecom operator, for several instances of unlawful data processing, mostly related to marketing. Following data subject complaints regarding unsolicited marketing communications made without their consent via text, email, fax and automated phone calls, the Italian regulator launched an investigation against the telecom operator. The investigation followed an earlier occasion several years ago when the Italian regulator then issued a prohibitory injunction against the company on account of similar infringements when the previous data protection legislation was in force. The regulator indicated that the investigation showed that the telecom provider's mobile app was configured in such a way as to require the user to consent on each access to processing for various purposes including marketing, profiling, communication of data to third parties, data enrichment and geolocation. Further, data subjects were only able to withdraw their consent after 24 hours. So a warning shot across the bowels there, I think, from the Italian Data Protection Authority that it will not tolerate unsolicited marketing to individuals within Italy. Also this week, the Belgian Data Protection Authority imposed a €600,000 fine on Google for refusing to remove search results relating to harassment claims brought against the data subject, thereby violating that data subject's GDPR right to be forgotten. The data subject asked Google to remove links to several news articles about him containing unproven harassment claims and political labels that he claimed were not representative of his beliefs. Google refused to do so, asserting that public interest justifies having the information available. The Belgian Data Protection Authority found Google's refusal to delete the search results to be particularly negligent as the information presented there has not been substantiated. 
is outdated and is likely to have serious repercussions for the complainant. Moreover, the Data Protection Authority explained that Google had evidence on the irrelevant and outdated nature of the facts, yet still refused to act. Google announced that it will appeal against the Data Protection Authority's decision. When we hear more news on that appeal, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Fiona Green, writing for Sports Pro magazine, raised some interesting points this week about the potential impact of GDPR on professional footballers and particularly when they come to transfer from one sub to another. And her argument centred around three of the rights of data subjects under GDPR. One is the right to access, the second being the right to portability, and the third being the right to deletion. And she argues that the right to access would give any soccer player access to the records that their clubs have on them. Now, that's not just going to be things like their home address and, you know, their pay information, but crucially, it would include all their data, including biometrics and any other performance-related information generated during matches, training sessions or medical sessions. So you put all that together and you say, OK, the player has the right to access all of that. But then you come to the right of portability. So if the player is moving from Club A to Club B, then the player can say to Club A, his original club, that, hey, I want you to put all that information in a film that's portable so I can take it with me to Club B. And then there's also the right of deletion. So any player could ask their club, governing body or league to delete all the data that they have about them. Now, this one is potentially a little more contentious, I think, because... The right to deletion is there that, yes, you're perfectly entitled to ask for data to be deleted, but there are actually strict caveats, really, over whether you can demand that data is deleted or not. But anyway, Fiona then goes on to argue what the potential ramifications this makes on the football transfer market. And she argues that primarily because of point two above, so that's the point about portability of data, then she's saying that in a situation where Club A wants to buy a player from Club B and knowing about the right to portability, asks the player to bring all of their data with them. Club B refuses because they consider that that data is their data, not personal data. And then Club A says to the player, well, if you can't get me the data, I'm not going to buy you. Club B would then be restricting the player's ability to get a job, which is already affected by something called the Bosman ruling in professional sport. She then goes on to say, well, you can add another level to this. If the player wins the argument and gets their data over to Club A, they then have the opportunity to reverse engineer the data points and get an insight into Club B's training method. Now, the question is, does the player have the right to all of the data, or only the data they generate themselves and not the data that Club B generates themselves? So, i.e. only the data that the player generates, not the club. So, would training data, biometrics, etc. be considered club data, or... Could you argue it's player data because it could only been collated by the player running, jumping, throwing, playing football? I think she raises a really interesting case and I can see other places where this could happen as well as football. But just sticking with football for the moment, the transfer market is so huge. But I can see there being real benefit in, in a club wanting to acquire a new player being able to ask for all that player's data because, hey, that saves loads and loads of time in training and biometrics and finding where that player's strengths and weaknesses are. I think it will probably take a case to go either to the FA or to a legal source for 
there to become a definitive answer on which data belongs to the club and which belongs to the player. But I think it's a very valuable argument that Fiona has raised, and I'd like to know your thoughts on it. So, so what do you think? Is that data player data, or is it club data? Let me know. Either if you're listening to this from LinkedIn, then put a comment on the LinkedIn post, or if you're listening to this on another podcast platform, then just send us an email to feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com because I'd love to know what you think the answer should be in this case. What's up, Isabella? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I will try it now. Anyone with a website which has visitors from the Republic of Ireland should ensure that they take action soon if they've not done so already to make sure that their cookie policy is working correctly and that they have a banner on their website to ask whether the user is willing to accept cookies and that also that they have a mechanism that allows users to not just select all cookies but to be able to select or deselect specific cookies. Back in April, the DPC, the Irish Data Protection Authority, issued guidance notes on cookies and other tracking technologies and gave businesses operating websites and apps in Ireland six months to bring their policies and practices in line. Obviously now we are in August, so there's about just over a couple of months to go to get that all in line if you haven't done so already. Back in April, the DPC surveyed around 40 popular Irish websites and identified concerns amongst nearly all of them. Just two of the websites surveyed got a green rating, meaning they were substantially compliant. In the DPC's guidance, it explains that cookies, the small text files that are stored on devices such as computers, mobile or Internet of Things devices, serve a number of important functions such as keeping track of items in an online shopping cart or helping web pages to load faster. The information stored in cookies can include personal data such as IP addresses, a username, a unique identifier or an email address, as well as non-personal data such as language settings or information about the type of device being used to browse the site. Cookies help websites form a memory of user activity and when a user chooses not to accept cookies they may find that some features on certain websites are not available to them. However, because users blindly clicking to accept all cookies on every website they visit may be unwittingly agreeing to share information with a variety of advertising and behavioural platforms. So, just a reminder, if you have a website addressing the Irish audience, you do need to make sure that you have your cookie policy in order before October 2020. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The Spanish Data Protection Authority, Agencia Española de Protección de Datos, APD, has started to act against organisations that still not, do not have a data protection officer, a DPO, in place, even though the obligation has been enforced now for two years. Following two complaints to the AEPD, Glovo, a digital platform that connects customers with independent local couriers who acquire goods from restaurants or shops and deliver urgent packages, was fined €25,000 by the Spanish Authority in April. The decision by the AEPD is still possibly open to appeal. Article 37 of GDPR requires companies to appoint a DPO when, amongst other conditions, data is being processed on a large scale. But there is no definition within GDPR of what large scale actually means. Because of that, the company involved in this case, Glovo, had decided not to appoint a DPO, but the AEPD saw things differently, with Glovo processing thousands of personal profiles every day, and thus they considered to be on a large scale. 
The fact that Globo had set up a data protection committee that had similar functions to a DPO and argued that the rights of its clients had always been fully protected were not enough to avoid the fine. It also wasn't enough that Globo had appointed a DPO after the AEPD had begun proceedings against the company. So what does this mean? Well, it means for companies in Spain, at least, the GDPR honeymoon period is well and truly over and the AEPD is ramping up its compliance and enforcement activities. However, bearing in mind the way that other data protection authorities within Europe all tend to try and work in sync, then it would probably indicate that all of the data protection authorities over the next 12 months or so at least are going to take a stronger line on whether an organisation needs a DPO or not. Now you have two alternatives with DPO. You can either have an internal DPO, which is a member of your staff, or you can appoint somebody or a company to be your external DPO. And I'm very pleased to say that we provide external DPO services to a number of companies here in the UK. And if you'd like us to provide a DPO service for you too, then please just drop us an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will get back to you and discuss what the next steps need to be. One of the main reasons that many organisations choose to have an external DPO is that the DPO should be allowed to operate totally independently. So that means their main function is to oversee your privacy policies and procedures. And sometimes the fact that the DPO is part of the organisation can mean that they face a conflict of interest. Outsourcing the DPO obviously is a way of avoiding this. And so for many, is the recommended course of action. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye-bye.